Let's take our Bibles and open to Deuteronomy 4. The last thing that we left off last time was the idea that you saw no form or image, but you saw or, or you heard his voice with God speaking audibly when he gave the ten words or what we commonly call the ten commandments. Where we want to pick up at today is chapter 4, verse 35. Entering into chapter 4, this is a situation where Moses is done recapping the previous history, especially of the first generation who failed to trust Yahweh and therefore failed to receive the inheritance. Now, why is that important? Here's the reason why. The children of Israel in an inheritance situation is a type of what is known for the believer's life in receiving an inheritance in the antitype. Now, am I saying that church and Israel are the same? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the real life, historical, flesh and blood events that took place whenever Israel came to the point where they were to believe what the Lord had said, to go into the land, to conquer, and then to possess it and inherit it for themselves was something that when they got the report back, they said, no, Lord, we're not going to do that. And because 10 of the 12 spies failed to do that, they were not allowed to receive the inheritance. Instead, their lives ended in ruin. Okay, so we know that is the historical event, yes? So here's the idea. We are liberated in the same way that Israel was liberated from Egypt by the application of the blood. When you believe in Jesus Christ, his blood is then applied to us and we are set free and we are given a prescription for obedience, not to be accepted, but to experience genuine fellowship with our creator because Jesus has made it possible. In doing that, we will be faced with times in our lives where we will possibly fail to trust him at critical matters when it mattered most. In doing that, we can forfeit having any inheritance at the judgment seat of Christ. Will we still be in heaven? Yes. Are we still God's accepted people? Absolutely. But we have the opportunity to rule and reign with him when the kingdom comes and to inherit the kingdom. In fact, you'll see some things like, like for instance, what we saw with Paul. Through many tribulations, excuse me, <clears throat> through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Does everybody remember that? Acts 14, 22 is where he says that. And he's talking to churches. He's strengthening them and he's encouraging them. And automatically you sit here and go, okay, so wait a second. If we don't go through tribulations, if we're not successful through tribulations, we don't enter the kingdom. Notice it didn't say you're not in the kingdom. That's not what Paul said. The idea of entrance at that time is not simply walking through a door. That's not the idea. In fact, the mind frame of what it would be to enter is to have a grand entrance, a grand entrance of something. Now, something you guys don't know about me is that for a while, uh, very early on, I don't know, probably the late 90s, I actually helped work with a catering company out of St. Louis Uh, for bands that would come through town. They would get hired out to come in, and uh, Poison is playing at the Mesker Amphitheater. And so I'm actually working Poison's dress room, making sure they got lunch, meat, and cheese. They like this type of beer and 
running, doing gopher things and whatever else. They got a big log laundry list called a rider. These are the things they expect to have. Uh, I worked a Motley Crue show. I worked two Kiss shows. I worked all kinds of different shows for bands, and you had all this stuff, and you were pretty much a runner where you would go get things that they wanted. But when it came time for showtime, everybody got real serious. Certain little rituals took place or whatever it was, and there was a grand entrance onto the stage. In fact, every time that Rod Stewart goes out to perform, he makes everyone turn their backs to him so they can't see him before he hits the stage. Odd. Odd. He made that entrance. Yeah, how full of yourself can you be? Uh, Tommy Lee from Motley Crue, if you know who he is, one of the nicest guys I've ever talked to in my life. He really is. And he didn't care how he got on stage. He just wanted to be out there playing. I mean, so everybody's got a different way. But the idea is that the entrance, the moment when it all kicks off, has got to be grand. It's got to be huge. And that's the idea. The idea here is having a grand entrance, having a well-received entrance. This is why Moses is going over this. He is setting the stage for what it looks like to enter, and not just enter, to enter well. Why? Because when you take possession of something, when you inherit something, it's yours. You have full ownership and rights, and this is the gracious God that we serve. He wants to share this kingdom with us. He wants to give us the opportunity to inherit it, but that inheritance is required to have faithfulness. It's no different from the type here. So the opportunity for inheriting the kingdom in the future is a antitype. Children of Israel inheriting now is a type. Is everybody with me on that? Does that make sense? Is there any confusion about that? That's an important concept to know. Okay, so what literally happened in history at this time serves as a shadow, as a type of what is to come in the future. So when we got into this whole idea in Deuteronomy 4, and he's talking to them, let's pick up in verse 35. And he says here, chapter 4, verse 35, To you it was shown that you might know that Yahweh, he is Elohim. There is no other besides him. In other words, the reason why God manifested himself in speaking audibly from the top of the mountain is because he was trying to leave such an undeniable impression upon the Jewish people that they would not stray from him and that they would be thoroughly convinced that they would thoroughly believe that he alone was the supreme being. Any, in this, in, here's why this is important. <clears throat> if you think about the contrast of this, anytime that you exalt something else alongside God, notice that what you're saying actually is that there's a possibility that God could be equal to this in some way. Does everybody see how wrong that is? So, so the ramifications of thinking-wise, how somebody would think about this, is extremely dangerous. So notice verse 36, out of the heavens he lets you hear his voice to discipline you. Notice the reason that's given. And on earth he lets you see his great fire, and you heard his words from the midst of the fire. Because he loved your fathers, notice that's the motivation, therefore he chose their descendants after them, and he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power. He personally, he personally did it. In fact, if you have a little marker there next to the word personally in verse 37, a little footnote or something, if you've got one of those Bibles that has the detailed footnotes, the detailed footnote in this instance right here says, with his presence. It literally means he manifested his presence, and that's how he ushered you out in a very relational, upfront, in your face, caring, fatherly, 
carrying these people out kind of idea. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Verse 38, driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in and to give you their land for an inheritance as it is today. Verse 39, know therefore, because he's doing that today, and take it to your what? So important. Now here's why this is important. Take it to your heart. Put your finger here. Turn back to verse 9 of chapter 4. Notice he says, only give heed to yourself, because we're the greatest deceivers in our lives, and keep your soul diligently, here's the reason, so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they do not depart from your your heart all the days of your life. We're seeing something very interesting. God is communicating truth has got to get into the heart before it begins to make a difference in the life. This is important. So now, back to verse 39. Know therefore today and take it, to, it, take it to your heart that Yahweh, he is Elohim in heaven, above and on the earth below, there is no other. So you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I'm giving you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may live long in the land, which Yahweh, your Elohim, is giving you for all time. The idea is, guys, you've got to be convinced of this in your heart. Now, don't raise your hand because I don't want to get personally discouraged, but how many of you would say that evangelism is scary? Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. Is there a, is there a certain amount of fear that accompanies the idea of getting with somebody, maybe one-on-one, and asking the hard question of, hey, when you close your eyes to this life, do you know what's coming next? And then being used of God in order to lay out the plan of salvation for them so that they can understand it and believe or not believe because of the information that you've given. For some of us, that's extremely fearful. So what overcomes that fear? How do we overcome that fear? Or do we just sit here in a straitjacket of fear our entire lives in the church? We never witnessed anybody, and then we wonder why the church isn't growing, why it doesn't have new life pouring into it. We're just kind of all in a holy huddle here. Is that, is that work? What has to happen? What has to happen is, is there needs to be a greater truth that brings a checkmate on top of the truth that we were buying in that, well, I could never do something like that. Well, there's no way that anybody would ever listen to me. Well, what if that person thinks this about me? You see what I'm saying? We need a truth that overcomes the fear that is monitoring and motivating our lives. Well, it's no different in that type of situation than it is here. Israel needs to be utterly and completely convinced that God's ways for her are the best possible ways that there could ever be. Otherwise, they will worship something and they will seek for something else to be true above that. Now, that's a pretty big thing because not only are they fighting the devil who wants to see God's promises rendered ineffective, but they're also fighting personal lusts, personal uh, uh, desires, uh, personal attainment, notoriety, whatever you want to say. There's a lot of struggles that go on, and here's the thing. They all originate in one place and one place only, and that is the heart. So therefore, truth has to invade the heart and become so true, which sounds weird. The truth has to become so true that someone is now convinced to act differently in light of what they know. Does that make sense? Okay, cool. So, verses 41 through 43, we won't read it, 
But at this point, after they've conquered all of this territory, Moses sets aside cities for refuge. Why? Because anytime you have a society of people, crimes take place. Whether intentionally or unintentionally, they take place. And when they take place, you've got to have some way in order to monitor a community and still ensue justice at the same time. And so we'll see such instances in Scripture, which I don't know if this has happened to any of you, but if it has, you've been out with an axe cutting wood, right? And you go to sling back and the head flies off your axe and it kills the guy behind you. Anybody had that happen? Okay, just making sure. But if it is, the way they would deal with it is they would say, listen, if we're just going to sit here and be reasonable and rational about all the facts that are put before us, it was an accident. It's not like the guy said, I wonder if I can hit him from here. You see what I'm saying? What are the odds of that? But it happened. And so what do you do? Well, so that this guy's family who died doesn't come after and kill you and your family because they want restitution for the wrong done to them. There's a city for them to still go to, still be able to live, to work through their conscience, to deal with those types of things, but to be out of harm's way. So Moses is setting all this stuff and and planning all this. So now this brings us to chapter 5. Chapter 5, Moses decides that he is going to open this section that he is going to issue again the ten words that God spoke from the top of Mount Sinai. Notice the beginning here, verse 1. Then Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and ordinances which I'm speaking today in your hearing, that you may learn them and observe them carefully. The Lord our God made a covenant, a contract with us at Horeb. And remember, Horeb is Mount Sinai. It says here, Yahweh did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us. But with all those of us alive here today, those who did not reject him when it came time to inherit the land was the idea, and they were still alive to this day, or those who were 20 and under is the idea, those who were not accountable for the sins that were going on because they saw everybody after them die with the exception of Caleb and Joshua. So it says here, verse 4, the Lord spoke to you face to face in the mountain from the midst of of the fire. And notice he's going back. He's saying it's the same thing that was given back in Exodus 20. It's the same thing we're going to tell you now. It hasn't really changed. Now we saw some variations when we went over this, but here's where we're dealing with the unfolding of the Ten Commandments. Now does everybody remember this or do we want to go through them all? Are we good on this? Let's go through them. Why not? It's fun. So it says here, uh, he, he gave it to them face to face. Notice that's important. Verse four, verse five. While I was standing between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up to the mountain. He said, now watch this. I am Yahweh, your Elohim, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, <coughs> excuse me, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what it is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Notice it gives you three levels there. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, Yahweh your Elohim, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath 
of Yahweh your Elohim. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. Reason so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, Yahweh your Elohim commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. And so from verses 6 to 15, we have what we could surmise very clearly. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It is all encapsulated there in the first four commandments. The other six commandments that are given here uh, will fall under the category of love your neighbor as yourself. Notice what happens in 16. Honor your father and your mother as Yahweh, your God, your Elohim has commanded you that your days may be prolonged and that it may go well with you in the land which Yahweh, your Elohim, gives you. Notice that staying in the land, and that promise is specifically brought up. It is all about inheriting the land to Israel. It is specifically touched upon in relation to how they treat their mother and their father. Very interesting to see. And when they disregard that relationship, they will be exiled from the land. Now, why is this important? Because when you get into books where you find the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, dealing with Daniel especially, Ezekiel, they're largely out of the land in a lot of those situations, or they have suffered from being in the Babylonian exile for 70 years. Why did they end up there? Because it was a degradation of their society away from God. And when God stopped being the thing that convinced their hearts of serving him and the idea of remaining in the land, or let me say it this way, they got in the land and they got fat and happy and lazy is the idea. And so what had to happen? Well, we got to get you out of the land in order to get your attention again. So now you don't have a place to dwell. I've got to get your attention. That is the divine discipline that he meets out there. Notice verse 17, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness about your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his donkey, or or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, we talked about this briefly. If you want to go over it, we can. But what we actually find out here is from verses 6 all the way down to 21 is is a chiastic structure in subject. You say, what in the world does that mean? It means that the first commandment and the last commandment given have a common denominator. And as you work into the second and ninth, the third and the eighth, the fourth and the seventh, the fifth and the sixth, and you work in, you find that they actually have common themes that they're dealing with throughout that. Now, why is that important? Here's the reason why. And in two weeks, I'm going to see if Charlie Clough doesn't mind to maybe teach this Deuteronomy class because he's gone through this book pretty heavily. And he could probably answer some questions and inspire us with some unique things instead of you guys having to hear my voice ramble on all the time. I think it might be good. But what you actually find out is that if you take those that chiastic structure of the Ten Commandments and you turn it like this, you actually find that everything that Moses is going to give in detail falls under each one of these headings as he goes through Deuteronomy to set them up for a structure of how they live society. Very interesting to see. So notice the writing and the dispensing of Deuteronomy is extremely intentional. God intentionally has a structure that they want to get across. Now here's the thing. Things like chiasms and stuff like that, for some of us that doesn't make any sense. And the reason is is because, let's be honest, nobody uses those literary devices today. 
The, the most creative we get are similes and metaphors. That's about it. You know, the last great allegory that was ever written was Puritan, uh, Pilgrim's Progress by, by Paul, uh, Paul Bunyan, John Bunyan, whatever his name is. The guy that had the Bunyan, that guy. That's, that's who it was written by. But that, that, whole, that whole book right there is an allegory. It's an allegory of the Christian life. Uh, that was probably the last great piece of literature that was written with that type of, of uh, design given to it. Now we just read stories straightforward about teenagers becoming vampires and weird things like that. We don't have time for all that stuff. Uh, very strange. So anyway, uh, and, and when we look through that, look at verse 22 then. <clears throat> These words, Yahweh spoke, and notice he spoke them audibly. He's referring back to the Exodus 20 event. To all your assembly at the mountain, from the midst of the fire of the cloud and of the thick gloom with a great voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. Now, I love it. We're going to go over and over and over and over again. Why two tablets? One for God, one for Israel. That's the reason why. Just like your mortgage, no different, right? It's a contract. It's a contract, and both people need to have a copy, so the expectation of the parties involved is crystal clear. Now, moving on here, verse 23. And when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes of Israel, and you said, Behold, Yahweh our Elohim has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen today that God speaks with man, yet, now this is a big deal, notice what a cataclysmic event this was, yet he lives. Everybody see that? Which means that under normal circumstances they would have concluded what? If God would have spoken to us under normal circumstances, it would have killed us. Now, can you imagine somebody talking to you and it would kill you? I know some of you husbands feel that way about your wives, but still. Laverne. <laughs> wow. Okay. So moving on here. But, but seriously, can you imagine? And what did they say to Moses at that time? Don't let God speak to us. Why? Because if he does, we'll die. You speak to us, Moses. You be the mediator between God and us. You be holding both hands and making that connection of communication. Serious stuff. So notice he says here, verse 25, Now, why would you die? Or, or why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of Yahweh our Elohim any longer than we will die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire and has lived? Now, who, who has done that? Anybody else but Israel? No, no one. So anytime the Bible asks me a question, I want to try to answer it. So I actually wrote, no one, no one's had that. Go near, verse 27, and hear all that Yahweh your Elohim says, that speak to us, that Yahweh your Elohim speaks to you, and we will hear, and we will do it. In other words, the children of Israel are coming into a verbal agreement with Moses that everything that God tells Moses, they will do. They are solidifying the covenant. Now, why is this important? The Mosaic covenant is the only covenant that is conditional in nature. It has one party that is making an offer, and the other party needs to accept the terms and conditions. Both sides live up to it. If one side fails to live up to their agreement, the other side is no longer obligated to uphold that. Now, as a side, too often we want to take the whole Wives submit to your husbands, and husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, and say, this is a conditional covenant. It's not. 
Just because one person is not upholding their God-given role or commissioning in order to properly represent the church and Christ in that relationship does not mean that the other party is obligated to fail or to give up their role. In fact, that's when you start to see the cracks of divorce take place. That's the problem in the church, and it shouldn't be like that. Back to this. I think that's important to say. Verse 28. Are we doing verse 28? Yeah, we are. 28 through 33. This kind of finishes the whole thing up. The Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, now watch this because this is a divine assessment of the people. I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they've spoken to you. Now watch this. They have done well in all they have spoken. Why is this unique, that sentence, that God says they've done well? Probably because when we look at Israel's history, we don't see a whole lot of they're doing well, do we? Not, not very much at all. We see some glimpses of it. David's kingdom, they were doing well. The beginning of Solomon's kingdom, they were doing well. When King Josiah came into power and started destroying all the altars where people worship false gods throughout the cities and throughout the, the entire land, they were doing well at those points. But other than that, Israel really hasn't done well by and large. It's, 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 it's a sad uh, sad look at that. So to, to have Yahweh say this right here is a very big bright spot. Now here it is, verse 29. This is God's grand desire for Israel, okay? Oh, that they had such a heart in them, that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may go well with them and with their sons. Notice that it trickles down the lineage forever. Go, say to them, return to your tents. But as for you, stand here by me, being, being Moses, that I may speak to you all the commandments and the statutes and the judgments that you shall teach them, that they may observe, notice that, that they may fashion themselves in such a way in the land which I give them to possess. So you shall observe to do just as Yahweh your Elohim has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. You shall walk in all the way which the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live and it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days in the land which you will possess. Sounds pretty cut and dry, straightforward, serious, but gracious, doesn't it? Okay, it's pretty clear. Now we are right on to, uh, we're at 11.28. Do we want to move forward or do we want to stop? We're taking next week off because of uh, the first responders Sunday, very important day to be here. So we won't have Sunday school. We'll have our meal instead at this time. And then we're good. Cut it. Okay. You, you want to go home and watch football? Praise the Lord. Okay. Yeah, that's a great excuse. That's good. I don't know that I believe it, but... <laughs> you didn't get that done yesterday? Oh, that's how plumbing works, man. So we need to pray for Terry. Excellent. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray. Father, thank you for looking over Deuteronomy, doing this full recap, excited to grab onto it and to run forward with it, Lord. And just all the wonderful things that you display for Israel about how to conduct their society and how to structure life in such a way as to where you are preeminent in all things. Please, God, because I know what it's like. Be with Terry in plumbing situations, God, and help him and bless him, give him patience and long-suffering in that whole situation. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.